Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, and we are beginning today a journey through the next several weeks of chapters 5, 6, and 7, which comprise Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, um, you know, when we read Scripture, of course, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is inerrant. It it is inspired. It is the Word of God. But occasionally, we come to passages in Scripture, and in your Bible, it's likely this way, where you have a whole lot of red letters on the pages before you. And I can't help, it's not to say that, that this is more important than any other aspect of Scripture. Jesus Himself is the incarnate Word of God. It's Him. He is the Word. But when we come to these pages of scripture I can't help but just go Lord this is you this is Jesus talking to us this is his these are his words this is his instruction first to his disciples and those who were hearing him there and by virtue of the Holy Spirit inspiring Matthew he wrote them down and it's for us today we have instruction from Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior to us today on how we are to live our lives This is the Sermon on the Mount. And so I hope that you are excited. I'm excited, not just because I haven't preached in two weeks, so that's probably contributing to some of it. Okay, there's some energy that's built up here today. But I'm so excited to be spending time in this passage of Scripture. Three chapters, 111 verses, all from the mouth of Jesus for us. That's incredible, folks. That's a gift. And I pray that we would each recognize that today. John Stott says this of the Sermon on the Mount, that it is quote, the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. That's what he has for us today. And so if you would agree with me in prayer once more. Father, we pause once again here this morning, Lord, as we go to your word. Lord, your word which you exalt above your own name. Lord, we give you thanks for it. We praise you for it. Lord, we pray that you've heard our praises here today, that it's been pleasing to you, that it's readied our hearts, Lord, for this other aspect of worship, which is the study of your word. And I pray, Lord, that through this time, we would, Lord, surrender our lives, that we would have open minds, open hearts, as David prayed. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, Lord, what it is that you have for us today. Help us to apply this word to our lives. This is, in fact, Lord, what you desire of us. You describe the life of a believer who's in right relationship with you. And so, Lord, help us, I pray, to take it to heart. Uh, And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, stated, stated somewhat differently, we come to a place here today in Scripture of considerable importance. As I mentioned, the incarnate Word of God Himself, is, as we will see, has come and has sat down on a hillside, and He has begun to preach and to teach, giving instruction to His followers of what it means to be in right relationship with God, how a Christian should, in fact, live his or her life. These are important words. What this is, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is an invitation to become a citizen of God's kingdom with the associated instruction then of how to live in light of being a part of his kingdom. And so over the next few weeks, we have the opportunity to study and to evaluate how do our own lives as professing believers, how do our lives measure up to what it is that Jesus wants. The setting, as you might have gathered, is on a mountain. 
right? Which in, in some respects is really sort of a, a big hill. Uh, it's settled in the uh, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the Galilee region just outside of Capernaum. It's where Jesus has been ministering uh, up until this point. And I actually have a few pictures for you this morning. If you want to go ahead and throw some of those up. So here is a view from the Mount of Beatitudes is what they call it. This is a view looking out at the Sea of Galilee. This is atop the hill. And so with the exception, of course, of maybe some different foliage, this would have been very similar to what Jesus and those who were with him would have seen as he was preaching. You can go to the next one. There we go. That's a good one. I suspect that this is probably a bit more in line with what things looked like at that particular time. And so um, absolutely incredible that we can go to and visit and see the very places where Jesus taught. And by the way, this is not really contested, meaning nobody really disputes that this was the area where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's pretty widely accepted that this was the place. So let's go ahead and keep moving on then. So, so remember, Jesus now moving up to this particular location out of the city or the town of Capernaum, this location served Jesus well as his followers began to increase in number. Many people were coming and gathering to Jesus. And so this, this location served to accommodate a larger crowd. Uh, and on the hillside, it allowed Jesus to speak with little effort and still be heard by many people, though it should be noted, as I alluded to, Jesus here was primarily speaking to his disciples. Now, while the content was applicable to all, Jesus was addressing the men that he had chosen to play a role in birthing and establishing the church, okay? And so, We'll take a moment here this morning to set the stage for this event and for what we'll consider over the next uh, three chapters because it's going to take us some time to make our way through this sermon in its entirety. Today we'll only get through what's known as the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses here of Matthew chapter 5 because it's important for us not to breeze through this as it would be easy to do. Now, I'll, I'll let you know here on the front end, we're going to be much heavier on uh, introduction and overview, okay? So I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, of its importance, of its context. And so as we get to the Beatitudes themselves, if you find yourself going, man, we're, we're, we've got to be almost done right now, and, and you start to panic, don't worry. We'll move through that part a little bit quicker here this morning. But I want to set the stage for us here because it's important to understand. Uh, we can't just simply give some sort of consideration to the Sermon on the Mount, as many do, as just kind of this lofty, sort of philosophical teaching on the part of Jesus. Much of what Jesus has to say, though, as believers, too, we can hear it and we can go, okay, that gives me a different perspective. Sometimes what Jesus says can feel sort of out of reach for us. As, as sinners, as, as those who are not perfect, we can hear some of what Jesus has to say and go, man, I, 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 don't, I don't live up to that. But it doesn't give us the excuse then or that can't serve as an excuse to dismiss it. But rather to say, okay, this is what Jesus is calling me to. I ought to consider, is this really something that is in my life? We need to dig in. We need to meditate on the words of Jesus and what he is calling his followers to. And so, uh, let's consider then for a moment where we have been so far in the Gospel of Matthew because it's all been building up to this place. Remember, Matthew has been writing with a purpose. He hasn't just simply recorded things for the sake of recording them. He's, he's recorded them with a purpose, highlighting certain things that would be key for especially a Jewish audience to understand about the Messiah, Jesus. In chapter 1, 
of the Gospel of Matthew, we have the genealogy, which if you recall was important in that it made clear the lineage of Jesus, both to Abraham as well as to David. We see within that genealogy his Jewishness as well as his right to the throne, but also that his name is Jesus, that he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Matthew lays that out as the foundation as he begins. Then in chapter 2, we see the Magi who come to worship him, recognizing that he is the one who was spoken of, who was born king of the Jews. And this truth then is the catalyst for Jesus and his, his family, his parents, Joseph and Mary, to flee to Egypt. And then what Matthew does for us is as he references prophecy and the the son returning from Egypt, as they come back from Egypt, what starts to become clear then is this opportunity now for Jesus to begin writing a new story. Remember, he's writing to Jewish people. And so here now it's Jesus, the son, coming out of Egypt and and Jesus, in, in a sense, making for a new exodus. It's a new exodus with a son who's greater than Joseph, with a son who's greater than Moses, who begins to establish a new covenant for his people. In chapter 3, then, the time has come for one who was chosen, John the Baptist, to make a way for the Savior, to ready the hearts of the people to receive what Jesus has for them. And he does this, John does this, by preaching a message of repentance, which, if you recall, is a process that we must engage in, which includes confession, that is, declaring what it is that we know we have done, uh, confessing our sin, followed by contrition, a brokenness over our sin, an awareness of how destitute we are, and then conversion, belief on Jesus Christ, and then a commitment to turn the other way, to go in another direction. And this is the message that's being preached as Jesus begins his public ministry. And then, as Jesus is baptized, we come to chapter 4 and we read of his time in the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And it's through this, though, that we see and realize that Jesus was in every way tempted as we are yet without sin, as Hebrews tells us. Jesus dealing with the temptation that all men face, the temptation of self-gratification, the temptation of of self-protection, the the temptation of of self-exaltation. The fact is, every temptation that man faces is a temptation of self, a way in which we can indulge ourselves. Yet in every instance, we see that Jesus relies on the Word of God and communion with and dependence on the Father in order to overcome these temptations, giving us a pattern for how we too might be victorious in this life. Jesus shows us the way. He doesn't just talk about it. He experiences it himself and he demonstrates. He demonstrates it and, and then he gives, this then gives way to his public ministry where Jesus himself begins to preach repentance as he calls his first disciples. And if you recall, we see his disciples respond to that call there in chapter 4. Jesus calls four of them initially, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. If you remember there, they are fishing. In fact, they've been fishing all through the night. They're tired, and Jesus comes, and he calls them, and immediately the word says they dropped their nets, and they followed him. They left what it was, the, 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 their livelihood, their, their family. There was a willingness to just set everything aside to follow after Jesus because they began to rightly understand who Jesus was. And, and for anyone today, if you come to a place where you understand truly who Jesus is, you come to a place where the Holy Spirit has drawn you unto repentance, and you begin to go, this, this, this guy's real, He's the real deal. He's the Messiah. Well, then there's no option but to follow him. 
because his call warrants such an action. It requires a life change. And so then Jesus sets out and he begins ministering to many as we read about even prior to this in chapter 4 and verses 23 through 25, it says, And then Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now these are the multitudes that we see with Jesus here on the hillside as described here in chapter 5 and verse 1 as it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and He sat down and His disciples came to Him. These are the things that have been happening. Now why have so many followed Jesus at this point? Well, because He's, he's growing in popularity. He's healing people. He is saying things with authority that in some cases sound new, but yet also are timeless truths. Things that people have been hearing for for many, many years, yet it's being said in a way where now they're understanding it. It's making more sense to them. He's different. People believe, of course, Him to be the Messiah. Many, many are saying that He is. And and so Jesus has drawn people in and and now He's going to rock their world as He begins to really instruct them and to teach them on what life is like when you follow him. As it says in verse 2, and he began to teach them. Such few words, yet so powerful as we consider what's about to happen, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who has left his rightful place in heaven, seated there at the right hand of the Father, humbly submitted himself to the will of the Father, come as the incarnate word, fully God, fully man, into this world, and now he begins to teach And we have it recorded for us here. Now why have I taken the time to mention many of these things here this morning? Well, certainly review is good. It's been over a week since we were in our study of Matthew. But for us to truly grasp the Sermon on the Mount, the significance of it, we can't just look at it as a standalone teaching, although certainly it could function that way. You could absolutely take the three chapters and say, here is a masterpiece. But remember, Matthew is writing with purpose writing to a Jewish audience, and he's making it clear that the Messiah has come. The one with a line to Abraham and a line to the throne who has come out of Egypt to save his people, who like Moses, listen to this, who like Moses, when he went to the Mount of Sinai to receive the law, now the Messiah, the one who's paving a new way, who's bringing a new covenant, has also gone to the mountain, and he's bringing instruction, not just on the law, but as the fulfillment of the law. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see what Matthew wants us to understand? That all of this is finding its fulfillment in Jesus. All their years of religion is coming to a place where it has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He will say so much, Jesus himself, that he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so Matthew is is telling a new story of a greater Moses, of a Messiah who is bringing a new covenant. And Jesus, having drawn many now, is sitting down. He's teaching in a way where other rabbis would teach. He's sitting down. It speaks of authority that when the teacher would sit, it was time to listen. And he's giving instruction that says, this is what someone's life should look like when they follow me. You see, the importance of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be overstated. As I said, 111 verses, 50 imperatives, 50 commandments that we see that Jesus will deal with. Commandments, instruction, insight, and perspective. It cannot be dismissed or overlooked. The beginning of Matthew, as we've considered, deals with the groundwork of who Jesus is. 
And then the end of the gospel. I mean, we, we've considered here, just quickly reviewing the first four chapters, if we jump ahead to the end of this thing, to the end of the gospel, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we read, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. You see, the the, the great commission at the end of the chapter is Jesus saying, go and teach everybody. Tell them everything I've told you and command them. They need to keep it. They need to live their lives this way. You see, there's a question that a lot of people have posed about the content of the Sermon on the Mount. There's even a book written about it. Pastor Jimmy's going through this book right now. and, And really, this could be said of the content of all of Jesus' teaching for that matter. And it's this question, what if Jesus was serious? What if Jesus was serious about everything he said? That's right, I see some of you saying it. He was serious, wasn't he? He didn't just say it. He didn't just say if you'd like to, if you feel comfortable, if you want to consider some of these things, it might benefit you in life. He says, no, command them to keep everything that I've taught you. Now, as recorded by Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah. He says that the prophecy fits. He takes us back to consider all the prophecies we've considered just even in the first four chapters. Jesus' own claims say as much, and yet there are some who say, oh, he was just a good man and a good teacher. That may be some of you here today. That may be some of you who are watching online. You're, you're curious, but you've never really come to a place where you recognize and said, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's my Savior. And then, of course, there are those who do profess to know Him, yet they pick and choose what things they want to listen to and what things they want to follow. Listen, C.S. Lewis said it well in his book, Mere Christianity, when he he writes this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. C.S. Lewis writes, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And listen, if you fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, then the implication is that you're going to do what he says. Yet what is it that he says? You know, the Sermon on the Mount is intended, the way it was written, the way that Matthew wrote it, it's intended to be memorized. All three chapters. I've not done it myself. I'd like to. What is it that Jesus is saying? Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, if you'd allow me to skip ahead for a moment, gives us some insight, gives us some sense of the implication of the journey that we are about to embark on. As Jesus says, is recorded here in verses 19 and 20, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means Enter the kingdom of heaven. You see what happens if we want to just sort of go through this and and go, oh, look at all the the nice things that Jesus said. We can pass over passages of scripture like this that says, listen, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you're not getting into heaven. That's pretty heavy. Because you see what Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount is he begins to give us insight here into his standard. And the fact is his standard is high. Better yet, it's perfect. Throughout this sermon, we'll see that we, what we thought was righteousness, what we think is righteousness, doesn't even come close. 
You see, what Jesus seeks to do in this sermon is to sort of turn everything upside down, to challenge everything that we think, to bring us to a place where we say, well, hey, yeah, I struggle with lust, but I'm not an adulterer. Or, yeah, yeah I, you know, I don't like this person. In fact, this person really drives me nuts. In fact, push comes to shove, I kind of hate this person, but I'm not a murderer. Oh, you know, I serve in the church. I volunteer, I do good things, I give money, and I, I'm, I'm a really good person. Jesus takes everything that we can sort of convince ourselves, makes us good, and he says, not good enough. Let me take it a step further. He turns all of these preconceived ideas upside down, and he calls us to a higher standard. He said, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees, which should then cause us to wonder, well, what is that? What is the Pharisees' righteousness? I thought people didn't really like Pharisees. John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers. He rejected them. Yet Jesus here is saying, you need to be more righteous than them. Indulge me for a moment. Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23 and verses 25 through 28, we get some insight on this. It's here also that Jesus says, woe to you. This is Matthew 23, beginning in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, when Jesus says you need to be more righteous than that, what he's saying is you need to allow your heart to be transformed to be changed. What Jesus seeks to give us here in the sermon is to say, I want to tell you how God looks at things. I want you to understand what a right relationship with God looks like. I want you to understand what a transformed life, what a transformed mind, what a renewed mind and a renewed heart looks like, how it thinks, how it functions. You see, what Jesus does so very well is to bring us to a place where He exposes our hearts and allows us to see the difference between our standards and his standards, and how the two don't measure up, they don't reconcile. It's in this very sermon where we'll consider things that Jesus says, like what we read in, in Matthew in chapter 7, and verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, or elsewhere in Chapter 7 and verses 26 and 27. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was its fall. You see, Jesus says some things in this sermon that bear tremendous weight that when rightly considered by those who are seeking him can mean the difference between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. So you might say, okay, so you're telling me that as a Christian, that I'm called to live out everything that we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7? Yep. Yes, we are. There's no way around that. This, what we read here, is what our life is supposed to look like. That's why it's so important. Now you might be also thinking, that's impossible, I can't do it all. And I would agree with you. There's only one who can truly keep every word of this, and that's Jesus. 
That's why it's so amazing that we've been given His righteousness, covered by His blood, that when God looks at a Christian, what He sees is His Son. He sees Jesus. Because what I'm not suggesting to you today is some sort of works-based salvation. I'm not suggesting to you today that we need to go about and say, okay, like a checklist, I'm just going to start keeping all these things because that's the only way I'm going to get into heaven. That's not what I'm communicating to you this morning. But it doesn't mean, because yes, we are covered by grace and, and by mercy, it doesn't mean that we don't still look at this and go, okay, this is what I am supposed to attain. This is what I'm supposed to strive for. This is what I'm supposed to, to seek to, to do to model my life after. Author Jonathan Pennington, who wrote extensively on the Sermon on the Mount, said this, While the impossibility of earning salvation and the need for radical grace are true from a whole Bible perspective, this misses the genre, point, and goal of the sermon. The sermon is not, to use Luther's overly reductionist categories, law that makes us see our need for gospel. And we'll pause there a moment. What he's saying here is, some have dismissed the Sermon on the Mount as essentially a higher form of law that simply shows us how bad we are. And so, like Paul says of the Old Testament law, it served as a schoolmaster to teach me and to show me. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. It isn't just some standard that causes me to go, oh, I just fall short, and so, thank you, Jesus, I need you. No, it is Jesus' standard that we say, Lord, I can't obtain this. This is so far beyond me, yet you've told me this is how I'm supposed to live my life and that you've given me your Holy Spirit that's drawn me and indwelt me and sealed me and empowered me and you expect me to begin living my life this way. And so, Lord, help me to do that. And every time, Lord, I fall short, help me to measure it against this, Lord, that in this life I could bring you glory, that my life would be different, that I'd be sanctified on a daily basis, Lord, that, you, that people would look at me and they would say, I remember him, and he didn't used to be this way. His life has changed, praise God. You're different. There's no greater compliment than when somebody comes to me and this happened much more often, by the way, when I was in the corporate world, when I was out in the workplace, okay? So some of you may be able to relate to this. I spend far more time around a, a whole lot of Christians these days than I do unbelievers. And that's sometimes the challenge and the problem for a pastor in the church, right? I used to be around unbelievers a whole lot more. And I'd love it when they'd come to me and they'd say, you're different. And I wouldn't be offended by that. I'd say, well, tell me more. Why do you think I'm different? And it opened up doors to be able to share with them the truth of the gospel, so it's not something we get to dismiss that it's just sort of this law that makes us see our need for the gospel. He goes on to say, rather, it's wisdom from God inviting us through faith to reorient our values, our vision, our habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. Cleaning the inside of the cup and the outside. He says this isn't law, this is gospel. Jesus is inviting us into life in God's kingdom both now and in the future age. This is grace. Unmerited favor. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus inviting us into his kingdom and saying this is how I want you to live your life both now and in the future. So Christian, do you want your life to demonstrate that you are in a right relationship with God? That your life would say, I know Jesus. He's my Lord and my Savior. Well, then this is what our life 
ought to look like, or maybe we could say be looking like more and more each day. Now Jesus begins first, and this is what I told you. You ready to begin? <laughs> we'll move through these rather, rather quickly here this morning. We'll revisit them next week. He begins first here with what we call the Beatitudes. What does Beatitude mean? It means supreme blessedness. So these are blessings, okay? Not blessings that Jesus is sort of uh, uh, giving to them or giving to us, like saying, oh, God, God bless you, but rather, if you do this, you'll be blessed. You could almost say that these should be your attitude. Does that make sense? Not really trying to be funny there. I think it really helps us to understand this should be your attitude. These are the attitudes. Now, Jesus mentions eight. Let's go. Verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now listen, when I read this passage, I was saying to Ashley last night, I said, should I say blessed or should I say blessed? If I was just talking normally, I'd say blessed. But some, something happens when you read the Beatitudes and you're like, blessed, right? I just can't get it out of my head. It goes way back. It's been there from the beginning, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First thing to note here, blessed or blessed can also be translated happy. Not in our understanding necessarily, but in terms of, say, uh, content, at peace. So you could say blessed, or you could say happy are. Happy are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, this means humble-minded. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, Romans 12.3. Isn't it interesting? That's what Paul says in Romans 12.3. What does he say before that in 1 and 2? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When your mind has been renewed, you move to a place of being humble-minded, right? You're not thinking the way the world thinks anymore. Your mind's been transformed by the, well, the word of God, and so now you have a humble mind because you have a proper understanding of, of who you are and who God is. Another way you could say poor in spirit is destitute. Blessed are the destitute in spirit. What does that mean? It means that you know that in you is nothing good. Certainly nothing that would warrant you a place in God's kingdom. You have nothing to offer, nothing that can earn salvation, so you humbly come before the Lord and say, what I can give you is just me. That's all I have. It's just me. And the amazing thing is that God says, that's exactly what I want. You. Your life. And the kingdom of heaven is yours. You give me your life, it's yours. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the destitute, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now those who mourn, and, and these build on each other a little bit, okay? Each of these things, especially for the, through the first four Beatitudes, they sort of, they're sort of like stairs. Those who mourn, see, because those who are poor in spirit have an awareness of just how destitute we are, that there's nothing good in me, that the only thing I can bring to God is my life, which is exactly what he desires. But because I'm aware of just how destitute and how poor I am, well, then that brings me to a place of mourning. Now, wait a second. So you mean we're supposed to be sad? I thought it says, so this would say happy are those who are sad. That doesn't make sense. I'm not saying sadness in a way like that, uh, but, but the fact is some things, yes, should sort of make us sad. Some things should cause us to mourn. Some things should cause us to lament. For example, our sin. Remember, repentance is confession and what? Contrition. That's lamenting over your sin. Or maybe not just your own sin, but maybe the sin of the world. Can I get an amen on that? 
or maybe the rejection of the gospel in our world today, that could cause us to mourn. But so many people say, well, well, how can I be happy if I'm sad? And let me tell you, that's so American, okay? That is so American. We can't tolerate a moment of sadness. We want everything to be like Disney World, the happiest place on earth. And listen, I'm, I'm guilty of that, okay? I don't like to lament. I don't like to mourn. I don't like to be sad. I want to move through things. I want to move beyond it. I want everything to just be okay. But see, that that shows how often we swing the pendulum in our culture too because oftentimes what happens in our culture, especially in America today, is we do let things like this consume us. We don't have a proper balance. It's either we're really happy or we're depressed and not a willingness to just kind of go, it's okay to lament, it's okay to mourn, it's okay to just be, to allow some things to be heavy for a time. This doesn't say that. It doesn't say go into depression. It says, no, you have an awareness of your condition and what that does is it allows you to lament and to mourn and to seek the Lord, but through that to know, okay, Lord, you have a plan, you have a purpose, that everything will be okay and that ultimately you will comfort us for eternity. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, the meek. So those who are poor in spirit, who know their destitute condition, who then are mourning over it, lamenting over it, looking at our world today and saying, Lord, this isn't okay. Lord, forgive us. Right? It's okay to be in that place. It's okay for us to lament for a while over the things that are happening right in our own community. And so those who are poor in spirit, who are mourning, who are lamenting the world that we live in, who are lamenting our own s- sinfulness, are then meek. Now you might say, wait, I, I don't get it. So we're just sort of these like weak little things? Meekness? Listen, here's what we have to understand about the word meek. Meek is not weak, okay? Remember that. Meek's not weak. It may sound that way. The word meek sounds sort of like mousy, like I'm just sort of timid and quiet. And That's not what meekness is. J.B. Phillips translates it this way, as those who claim nothing in this world. That is to say, Lord, I'm yours. The world is not my home. I have nothing here. And for that reason, Lord, whatever you have for me, whatever you want to do, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'm, I, I'm ready. That's sort of what meekness speaks to, okay? Meekness, another definition of it that I love, is strength under control. Do you know that uh, some of you maybe have heard me say this before, that meekness is a term that is used to describe a well-trained and powerful horse? Anybody ever walked up to a huge horse and you just like see the muscles on that thing twitching and you think to yourself, I don't want to get near that thing. Certainly don't want to get on the backside of that, right? I mean, it it creates a little fear in you, but because it's trained, because it's been brought under control, it's been considered meek. It's not any less strong. It's not any less powerful. It's just disciplined. That's meekness. Meekness is being willing to serve And and note that when you have this attitude, look what it says, blessed are the meek. As J.B. Phillips translates it, those who have no claim on anything in this world, what is their inheritance? All of it. All of it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, happens to be in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled What do you hunger and thirst for? Friends, be honest. What do you hunger and thirst for? It's 10.15. We're supposed to be wrapping up here. Maybe you're hungering and thirsting for food and water, right? Jesus calls us to something beyond that. What is it in your life that you're desiring? Maybe as you rightly, because I trust many of you are, 
solid believers who are pursuing the Lord, studying His Word, and you're looking at what's going on in our world today, I trust that many of you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness can also be translated justice. Is that a word that maybe hits home a little bit right now? Are you hungering and thirsting for those things? And not just for yourself, not just righteousness for yourself, that, that, that God, that I would be a, a man that is pleasing before you and right relationship with you, but I want that for this world, Lord. I long to see revival. That this world, that people would be in a right condition, acceptable to you, God. That people would turn to Jesus. That there would be justice. That there would be biblical justice. Jesus says that if this is what you are hungering and thirsting for, and this ought to be an encouragement, that you'll be filled. The fact is, it will come. Now, these first four were really about our own hearts, our own attitudes. And then the next four that we see here are still about our hearts, but they're more about action. What are we doing as it relates to someone else? And we see in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This one's quite simple. Merciful means forgiving, compassionate, full of mercy. Merciful, right? Not giving someone what maybe they deserve. We've been shown mercy, haven't we? So as the adage goes, the forgiven should be forgiving. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure means clean. It means innocent. It means blameless. That's to be our heart. How does our heart get that way? By allowing Jesus to transform it so that we have right motives, so that we interact with the rest of the world in a trustworthy manner, not for selfish gain, but to be a person that people say, I trust them. I love it when I hear believers talk about the favor that they have in the workplace. And the fact is, it's because their company or their boss or whomever, even if they don't know them to be a believer, even if they're an unbeliever themselves, they value the Holy Spirit at work within them. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 says that we are ministers of reconciliation. That we are to be about making peace. Reconciling the world to Christ. We're ambassadors for Him. How do we do that? Well, we share the truth of the Gospel. As reconcilers, we too have been reconciled. We've been made children of God, and so we bring that ministry of reconciliation. We tell others about what God has done for us. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution means that you are subject to hostility and poor treatment because of your righteousness. Or stated differently, because of the way you live your life. See, when you do these things, when you live your life this way, persecution will come. And I would simply say this, if persecution doesn't come, if you're thinking, oh, there's no, been no persecution in my life, there's maybe a variety of reasons for that, but chances are there's a couple things at play. You spend the majority, if not all, your time around believers or you're not really living your life this way. Because inevitably, and I'm not suggesting it needs to be some massive form of persecution, although, listen guys, if you haven't been watching the news, I know some people are tiring of us saying this, but we, it's happening, okay? Churches that are coming under attack in our own country. There's two Catholic churches this last week. One guy drove a car through one, started it on fire. I mean, these things are happening, okay? Persecution is coming. But yet it says here that blessed or maybe happy are those who are persecuted. That's a difficult one, right? Am I going to be happy? Blessed when this happens to me? 
I'll read on, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going to invite the worship team to start making their way up. You've heard me say this before. I don't wake up in the morning and go, Lord, I hope I get some persecution today. That'd be impressive. Would you respect me more if I said, yeah, that's what I do? If Ashley was like, yep, every morning, bring it. I don't want that. Anybody who says they want that's kind of crazy. They're like, whoa, man. I don't know if I want to hang out. But the fact is, Jesus is clear. You're blessed. But there's an important part to that. He says, when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say evil things about you, because of me. Somebody might say, well, but yeah, people say bad things about me all the time. Because of Jesus or because of you, right? Let's be careful. When is Jesus? When people see your life and they know that you're different and you've been striving to be obedient and you're seeking the Lord and you're spending time in his word and you're living your life for Christ and the world starts to come against you because the world, this world, belongs to Satan. And he views you as an enemy. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward. Listen, guys, it says in heaven, a great reward awaits you. And persecution is evidence that you are living your life in a way that warrants such reward. So yes, in that, you will be blessed, you'll be happy, you'll be content, but this requires a willingness for delayed gratification. And we're not very good at that. We want our rewards right now. But that's not the way it works. Listen, God doesn't withhold blessing from you. It's a beautiful day. There's wonderful things that we will enjoy today, many blessings, including being here together. But ultimately, what we need to recognize, especially as we seek to live our lives in a way that that pleases the Lord, is that our reward is future. I'm not living for what's here. I'm not living for now. I'm living for something that's beyond me, that's supernatural. You see, the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which, which we'll continue in next week, It runs counter to our culture today. What we have to understand is what we read in in really all of Scripture, but especially in chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's countercultural. Scripture says poor in spirit, but the world says pride. Scripture says we should mourn, but the world says be happy and party. Just do whatever you've got to do to feel good. Scripture says meek, but the, the world says power and claim and have it your way and pursue what you want. Scripture says righteousness, but the world, though it says it wants righteousness, looks at it from a relative perspective and says, well, I want my righteousness, and I want my righteousness, and I want it my way. Scripture says merciful, but the world says vengeful. Scripture says pure in heart, but the world says ulterior motives are okay as long as it means an end that you're pursuing. Scripture says peacemaker, but the world says protest. And listen, I know that that's a pretty hot, I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything about what's happening today specifically. But in general, I'm going to get things my way. I'm going to make sure I have it my way instead of bringing reconciliation and peace. Scripture says persecution. The world says no, peace and safety, whatever you need to do to have it. Listen, when you do things God's way, you experience something supernatural. Do you know that God has designed us to actually find fulfillment and contentment and peace and comfort in the things that run counter to this world? You know, we've been designed that way. 
And so the reason that so many people are not experiencing peace and comfort and contentment is because we've succumbed to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed. Christian, we can't pick and choose. We're called to lead transformed lives, which are the result of surrendering to Christ. His ways, not ours. And so I invite you on this journey throughout the next few weeks as we consider what He has for us. The fact is, the consequences are eternal. In Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Every one of us, rest assured, is on a road. We need to make sure we're on the right road. Jesus lays it out for us if we'll rightly consider it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. That you give us understanding. Help us, Lord, to apply your word to our lives. May we do so here now. That as we leave this place, Lord, we leave with a sense of how much you love us, how much you care for us, so much so that you've given us instruction for how to live, that you've empowered and equipped us to do that which you desire of us, if we would just surrender to you. And so perhaps, Lord, in this last song here this morning, whether here or watching online, there might be some of us, perhaps all of us, there's aspects I know in my own life. We just need to say, Lord, I surrender this to you. I know that's what you desire of me. Lord, help me to live a life pleasing to you that brings you glory. Lord, in this world. So, Father, do that work in us here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.